This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, author and professor Elizabeth Samet on how we understand World War II through the movies. And the question that Captain Miller, that's Tom Hanks's character, his soldiers ask him repeatedly, why is Private Ryan more important than I am? The problem with the notion of this as a, as a good war is that I think it has made us believe that every time America goes to war, we will accomplish a similar work of liberation. And we've seen that that has not been the case. I am struck by the language many different people are using to describe what's happening. Putin was talking about the Ukrainians' neo-Nazi regime. The references are all to World War II. Elizabeth Samet, welcome to Chatter. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Shane. Pleasure to be here. It's great to talk to you. Um, so you are a professor of English at West Point, the military academy, uh, which means that you spend your academic career teaching not just university students, but future military officers about uh, English and literature uh, and those important subjects. I should also note that means that the views that you express here are not reflective of official policy of the Department of Defense or the Department of the Army or the U.S. government. You're here speaking uh, in your own capacity. Um, but I thought that your position at West Point just seemed to like so situate you well for this book that you've written that we're going to talk about, which is called Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. Um, this is in some respects, it's it's kind of a film history. It's a film retrospective, but it is about so much more than that. And really, it, it, it's, I thought, a a pretty profound exploration of the stories that we tell ourselves about war and particularly the Second World War and how that's inflected and reflected so much in film uh, and in our ideas about that war. Um, I wanted to start by talking a little bit of why did you decide that you wanted to explore World War II through the lens of the movies? Well, I guess there's a deep autobiographical reason and then a professional reason as well. And my father was a World War II veteran, and I grew up watching some of the movies of his war, as I thought of it. He was older than some of my peers' parents, and uh, so my impressions of the Army and of the U.S. military came all from his his war and his uh, stories, which he would occasionally tell, but also from the movies that I got to watch with him. And the the impression that those movies created and the almost sacred aura that attaches to World War II in our national memory, our national psyche, were deeply imprinted on me as well. And as I developed as a professional, as a professor of English teaching future military officers, all of my ideas about war and about the memories that we retain of war were deepened and made more complicated as I saw my own students and colleagues go off to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think there's a deep, deep roots of this project and then much more contemporary ones. Part of the argument of the book is that we are always reading one war through another or one war through a series of others. And it's clear to me that the most recent wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, to which I feel a personal connection because of my students, shaped my approach and my impression that we are still talking about war in terms that were actually developed and, and a sort of architecture uh, developed during World War II. And we still invoke them, but they are unmoored now from their original context. And that creates all sorts of nuances and complexities. What were the war movies you remember growing up uh, when you were growing up uh, that you watched as a child and maybe with your dad? Um, so some of the movies that I watched with my father when I was growing up, they would be on television. Of course, this was before the days of on demand. So you'd you'd show up at a movie at whatever point it had started and you... You just would dive in. But some of the classics, the Wake Island, uh, Sahara, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, The Best Years of Our Lives, 12 O'Clock High, To Hell and Back, 
was another one of those movies, um, which strikes me now as such a strange film, how, how, how utterly bizarre it must have been for Audie Murphy to relive all of that on the screen. Just an incredible, an incredible and deeply troubling career that he had in Hollywood. What, what impression did those films leave you with about the war? Because you write in the book that your father didn't really talk about the war. And, and, and like a lot of World War II veterans, they just sort of put in the past. So what impression of World War II did you get from watching those films? So those films, which many of which were written, were, were made during the war, some immediately after, even if they touched on grave and brutal hard truths about war and about violence, all partook of a certain kind of quality, mythic quality, that was part of, of, Hollywood was of course part of the war machine, part of the propaganda machine. And so the ways in which the war was described and represented, the ways in which these American soldiers were cast as warriors for democracy, the ways in which that war's comparative clarity contrasted so much with the post-Vietnam world in which I grew up. And so that the war acquired that kind of rosy glow that it had. It was a war, it was violent, but it was, as the phrase goes, a good war or thought of as a good war. And I didn't really think about what that meant. What, what would a good war be? Uh, a war that you won, uh, a war that the cause of which the causes were comparatively unambiguous. So these are things that don't occur to a kid. Um, but it, but it, and it also it, it mattered to me that that was the war that he fought in. So there was a, a kind of personal connection there. Um, and I do think that Vietnam, more than anything, uh, sealed this this notion of the good war for us. Because, because Vietnam seemed such a betrayal in so many ways of American ideals that people reached back. Yeah, and you, and you obviously you don't write about <clears> – <throat> the book is about World War II films, but it strikes me as I was reading the book too, and maybe you could talk a little about this, but I mean Vietnam War films, I mean they are – Oh, intentionally, it seems to me in some ways, just the opposite of the idea of a World War II film. It's all about the futility of war. It's about the cruelty of war to civilians, to the GIs, um, the pointlessness of it. And obviously that reflects a lot of the feelings about the Vietnam War. Um, but war is war. And, and, those, and there are common experiences that all soldiers have. And we know there's so much more about with post-traumatic st stress disorder and the things that all veterans suffer. Yeah, but the Vietnam War film is in so many ways ways it is the it is the intentional opposite it's almost like it's rebelling against the hollywood system that made war seem glorious and 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 relatively straightforward and i think you can see the early signs of that in some of the korean war films which often tend to focus as film historians note on the lost patrol and that had been a theme in war films prior to this but it it seemed to be that the experience of this lone platoon eclipsed any larger notion of why they were there and where they were and what they were fighting for. And so there were no reaching after larger causes because it was much harder to explain those in the Manichaean good and evil kinds of ways that we were able to explain World War II. How much did World War II era filmmakers or filmmakers you know, who were making after the war movies about that war feel that it was a patriotic duty or that they had an obligation to tell a story about World War II in a certain way? I think during the war when so many Hollywood filmmakers, directors and others joined the armed services, I think they certainly did imagine it as a duty as many other Americans did. I think that some of the films they actually made, including uh, one in particular uh, by John Huston about the wounded, which was actually censored um, and not, not shown for a long time, suggested that they also felt a duty to tell the truth, even if that truth were very painful. Um, and so that's also part of what I'm trying to get at in the book is that there was a much richer array of accounts of war 
in addition to those patriotic films, there was during the war, and especially right after the war, a lot of really sour, dark, um, brutal treatments of the war and what it meant to come back from that war. And that's one of the things that has been forgotten. That's part of the amnesia that I write about in the book. So part of my hope there is in this discussion of films to suggest the various genres, not only film noir, but particularly film noir, in which the experience of war has completely dislocated those who fought in it, but also transformed the landscape at home, which is often characterized in these films not as a bunch of patriots supporting the war effort, but as a bunch of people who profited out of this war effort. And the GI is often figured as someone who comes home and has been cheated in a way, uh, a profound way um, of what he feels he had before the war or of what he feels that he's owed after the war. Yeah, the sections about the, particularly the noir treatment of the veteran and the GI were very eye-opening to me, and that's that's actually a period of my kind of cinematic education where there's something of a gap, and I want I want to talk about that. But I thought first I wanted to ask you about another film uh, that that comes. You talk about the beginning of the book, and it's one that I think a lot of our listeners will know because it's of a more recent vintage, uh, and because it was a massive Hollywood blockbuster. And the movie is Saving Private Ryan. Um, uh, which for me was not, you know, I don't view that movie as like the movie that taught me about World War II. There were, I, I didn't watch old World War II movies growing up. I was sort of like, I remember the movie Memphis Bell and some others that came around that period were sort of the ones that I was into. <clears throat> but Saving Private Ryan, no doubt, had a, a profound effect on millions of Americans' understanding of World War II or what they thought World War II was about. Um, so I want to talk about that film a bit. So just remind our listeners of, of the premise of that fil- that Spielberg film, Saving Private Ryan. The premise is that there is one soldier, Private Ryan, whose brothers have all been killed in combat. And it becomes something that is a matter for the, the chief of staff himself, George Marshall, a matter of some importance that they rescue Private Ryan so that he can go home. And a captain and his company, they're charged with going to find Private Ryan. And the whole story is about their search for Ryan. And they do discover him, of course, at the end, and he does survive. And the frame story of the film is that the older Private Ryan, with his family in tow, comes back to the cemeteries in France to pay homage to Captain Miller and the other soldiers, all of whom died saving him. So I remember this movie when it came out, the the critical reaction to it, and I felt like this was kind of my reaction too, seemed to almost treat it as two movies. There was one was the frame story that you mentioned where it's the older Private Ryan who in the movie is played by Matt Damon and he's remembering the, the team that went to go find him after his brothers were killed and, and the leader of that team is Tom Hanks. So you have these gigantic stars. But the other was the first 30 some minutes of the film, which is a recreation of the D-Day invasion and the landing at Normandy. And for me, and I think for a lot of people, what was striking about that sequence was it was possibly the grisliest, most terrifying depiction of war I think I had ever seen. And by so many accounts, including of veterans who were at the landing and spoke about the film, they said, that's what it was like. And, and we're talking about, you know, without going into so much detail of it, I mean, viscera all over the beach, people carrying severed arms. I mean, just this cacophony of noise. It was utterly nightmarish. Um, Talk a little bit about how when the film comes out, it's received as these kind of like two different movies. And correct me if you think I'm I'm off in that too. No, I I think there there are contrasting pulls and and there's a lot of tension between those, the frame story and the rest of the film. Um, The there was certainly at the time that it that it came out a great deal of discussion with combat veterans about its realism and there were also i uh, i found a the va i think sponsored a, a hotline in case in case veterans were disturbed by what they saw and needed to talk about it the um the ways in which that was filmed are of course quite interesting it was filmed to look like the 
visually to look like the, the tones and the colors to look like some of the period films, uh, documentary films. So that the footage was made to look like documentary footage of World War II. Um, and that's, I think, part of what made it feel so real for people was mm -hmm. that it actually looked like the movies, which is a very strange. <laughs> it's um, a very strange yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. of course, I mean, Spielberg's films always have this visual, they're stunning visually. They have a strong narrative arc. They're very seductive. And the frame story in a sense eclipses that it's deeply sentimental. It suggests that of course it was worth it because here's private Ryan an older Private Ryan uh, with his family who clearly loves him. And he asks his wife, you know, something along the lines of tell me that I was a good man, that I lived a good life and that it was worth it. And that with the flags waving and the music drowns out completely the real question that animates much of the film and the question that Captain Miller, that's Tom Hanks's character, his soldiers ask him repeatedly. Why is why is Private Ryan more important than I am? Why is Private Ryan's mother more important than my mother? And this focus on the individual is what interests me the most because that's the part that's really wholly anachronistic. This is not a war in which individual soldiers received that kind of care and attention for the most part, because the numbers were vast. And it was, you know, it was anonymity, really. Everyone was part of this huge machine of mass mobilization. And so the idea that the chief of staff would be engaged in this personally is, of course, great movie making. But it gives us, I think, a very false impression of the significance of the individual which we of course like to celebrate in this particular war. And I think that like had the movie not been such a huge commercial success, you know, had it been a minor film that not many people saw, you know, you could almost say, well, yes, I mean, it's, 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 it's misleading in its treatment of the individual soldier. Um, but maybe no harm, no foul. Not many people saw it. I, I really think there's a whole generation of people, maybe even more my age too, who their understanding of World War II is now largely informed through that film and the idea that animates it as this, you know, that the, that the, the needs of the many, uh, you know, can be sacrificed for the needs of the individual and all of the sort of ideas about loyalty and dedication that go on with that somehow defined that war. And as you explore in the book, that's just not the case. And there are other films that reveal that, that reveal a kind of corporate identity rather than a celebration of the individual. One of the ones I use to contrast it is 12 O'Clock High, which is mm -hmm. about um, American, the American uh, Air Corps in England flying missions. And it's all about the integrity of the group, as the commander of the group, played by Gregory Peck, says. And it's not about the individual. You can't break formation because your friend is in trouble, because then you jeopardize the group. And it's the group, the group, the group, the whole time. And I think that that, that has its own pressures and tensions, but I, I think that that reflected the period to a, with much greater accuracy than this celebration of the individual. I think the wars we've fought for the last 20 years often focused on individuals because the number of people we committed to these endeavors was so much smaller. You could think of individual terms. You could think of individual casualties. You couldn't do that in World War II because the numbers were so great. And I wonder too, as you know, as I was reading the book, is the the fact that so much was really about the group. Do you think that's what made people like your father or my grandfather for that matter so reluctant to talk about the war because they they didn't view it as an individual experience it was more of a of a group experience am i reading too much into that no i i don't know that i'd thought about it quite that way but i do think there was there was a sense that it was an experience to be gotten through rather than 
a kind of sphere for heroic action or an opportunity to prove oneself, although certainly, I mean, part of the point of my book is that soldiers fight for all sorts of reasons, and there are all kinds of motivations, there are all kinds of attitudes toward the enterprise. I also think that certainly in my father's case, um, that his family had been hit very hard by the Depression, and that that was not an experience that left a lot of room for thinking lofty thoughts about heroism and ambition, but it was about survival. It was about how do I make a living? Um, and then, you know, joining the war, joining the Air Corps in his case, and the experience, I mean, one of the, one of the amazing things about that war to me was the GI Bill, which I know enabled him to, to do things he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. He wouldn't have been able to afford to go to school. Um, and so I think that sort of transformation arguably became more important in his life um, than the war, which was an interlude, a painful interlude, a dislocating one to be sent when you're that young, recently out of high school across the world, um, in his case, to be to, to land airplanes in India. He was an air traffic controller. I mean, it must have just been incredibly bizarre. And, and to be able to process all that stuff while learning all these new skills and, and things, you know, just must have been overwhelming. And so he would tell me stories, but he would always say, especially when I went to work at West Point, he would always say, look, it was not a career for me. I was there because I had to be there. Um, and that was it. You know, you're, you're dealing with professional soldiers, he would always say. And so what is, what is my experience compared to that? Um, I remember so my grandfather died two years before I was born. So I always tried to mine his stories through my grandmother and he was in the army air corps and, and flew C-17s and mostly, um, glider missions. And he, and he didn't really, I don't think he saw any real danger per se, although I mean, flying was always dangerous. Um, <clears throat> you know, he wasn't flying the Memphis bell, but my grandmother would always say, you know, I just don't have that many stories for you. And she would always be like in this very disappointed tone because she knew I was so interested not just in the war and the history, but in knowing my grandfather. I mean, this this person who, you know, I never had access to. And finally, she just she when she summed up like why it was they didn't talk about it, she said something very much like what you just said. She said, "You have to understand that your grandfather and his friends. I mean, they were in their early twenties. Their whole life was put on hold because of this. They had to stop school. They had to stop work. They had to leave their families. And when they came back, they just wanted their lives back." And when she put it that way, it made sense to me that this was something, as you put it, it's an interlude. It's something that you you kind of put behind you, which must have also been very strange for people who served in that war to then see that experience replicated over and over and over and over again in the kind of national mythology of cinema, where suddenly everybody assumes they know exactly what your experience is like because they saw a war movie. And it must have been just like that. That must have been just profoundly, uh, uh, I would think, kind of annoying for a lot of veterans, too. I think your sense of of getting on with it, your sense that making up for lost time somehow, I, I think about, you know, you, you mentioned sort of that, that your grandmother said he'd put his life on hold. I think that's very much how people felt. This was a job to be done. And then you could live the rest of your life. And we also know there are certain generational things as well. And this, I think, owes to the, is, is in part as a result of the depression. But I do think that it was a society that was less willing to indulge, right? Less willing to discuss um, particularly traumatic experiences. And so we know that a lot of veterans did suffer after the war, but it wasn't something one talked about. So maybe they drank, maybe they uh, hid away from their families, maybe there were all sorts of ways to respond and to cope, but we didn't talk about those things. Yeah. And so that, that affected, I think, their post-war perspectives. Going back to Saving Private Ryan, of course, this film comes out in the midst of this kind of grand national celebration of what we now call the greatest generation. Uh, which means it seems largely to be the project of Tom Brokaw <laughs> uh, and maybe one or two other historians. Um, and, you know, there's almost like this sense that we are 
bringing these veterans out of the shadows and finally giving them their due. Talk about that period when you have kind of this, the, the whole greatest generation idea, um, which we should also emphasize, you know, too, I don't, I don't want to be overly cynical about this, but is a very commercial uh, endeavor in so many respects as well. Um, talk about that period and how we see that reflected in movies like Saving Private Ryan, but also in the way we start talking about these veterans in a, in a, in a, as a greatest generation that somehow stands out apart from all other Americans. I think that that movement coincided with the 50th anniversary celebrations of the war. It also was nearly contemporaneous with the first Gulf War, which I think was a testament to American, overwhelming a military might, technological might, was certainly in the eyes of the first President Bush, who was himself, of course, a World War II veteran, a way finally to kick the Vietnam syndrome, as he and others called it. So all of these swirling forces seem to coincide with this elevation of the generation that fought the war and the veneration of that particular generation. And it also worked to, I think, confuse consequences with causes. So as I've suggested, people join the war for all sorts of reasons. All the studies, the sociologists' studies, tell us that ideology was in fact less important to World War II veterans than it was to the veterans, let's say, of the all-volunteer force in our most recent wars. And you read material of the period, and they they did not... There's one study that talks about how many soldiers could name the four freedoms or any of the four freedoms, just as an example of this sort of sense of cause. And you talk to any soldier today, of course, and what's paramount is near-term survival when you're in harm's way. That doesn't mean that they didn't believe in certain causes or that they didn't feel a certain sense of patriotism. But the journalists of the time and the memoirs of the time reveal that there were lots of different things in play and that this sense of a generation doing heroic and honorable things in some cases, although not always, um, I think is something that's deeply flattering to us. The idea of Americans as righteous liberators is who wouldn't be flattered by that, that narrative. It feeds into this sense of American exceptionalism. It is a version of the war that coincides more neatly with Europe than it does with the Pacific theater, I think. And as I said, in confusing consequences with causes, it suggests that this is why we went to war in the first place, to liberate Europe. If that had been the case, we would have joined the war before we were attacked at Pearl Harbor. And there's a particular group of soldiers, I think, who help, helped me to understand this, and I think might help readers to understand it. And that's this group called the Premature Anti-Fascists, the PAFs, as they were called. And this was a group of Men, although women also served um, in the uh, Spanish Civil War, but these were soldiers who volunteered to fight the fascists in Spain in the late 30s. And this was technically a violation of the American Neutrality Act. Many of them were communists, not all of them were communists, but when they came back, they were all labeled as communists and they were called premature anti fascists. And this affected them during World War II when they tried to join up again because many of them were relegated to support jobs when they wanted to fight because they weren't trusted. And they, some of them found themselves in uh, sort of remote army camps with actual fascists and with ne'er-do-wells and all sorts of people who were in the army and didn't want to be in the army and they were sort of shunted aside. Uh Many of them actually ended up joining the OSS, or some of them did, and um, or doing other sort of special services. And one of them uh, was a man named Bernard Knox, who went on to be a classic scholar. He was, a, he was born in Britain, but he, he became an American citizen and fought in the United States Army. And he came home and learned then that he was had been labeled a premature anti-fascist. And he was stunned by that because he said, how could you be early enough to that fight? What would it mean to be on time? 
And so this sense there that the fight against fascism, we were late to that. And yet after the war, the narrative started to be revised and then no, then it gained momentum. And then, as I said, for all the other reasons that intervened, Vietnam, the Gulf War, the 50th anniversary, it became the single narrative that we heard. But you only have to go back to 1984 in Studs Terkel's collection of interviews called The Good War to hear a wide range of attitudes toward that war, both on the home front and by service members. And that many-voiced account reveals that that war was in many ways like other wars. People had mixed motives. Those motives weren't always clear. I thought that that was actually that when you when you recount um, the writings of Studs Terkel and Ernie Pyle and, you know, and, and look at some of the social science research that was done at the time, trying to understand what was the motivation of these GIs. For me, that was some of the most persuasive parts of the book and, and really made me feel a little badly as a journalist for thinking like my understanding and the education of this war, which is very much informed by these heroic ideals of intervening to save Europe and all the rest of it, they miss this reality of, of, you know, as you put it, you know, GIs being sort of like champions of their own survival, that they were there to just get through it. And that, you know, they, they weren't thinking like we're here saving democracy. I mean, those are ideas and narratives that, that storytellers have kind of fitted on them as characters after the fact to make ourselves, I think, feel like we were fighting for a good cause, a good war. Um, and it just strikes me too, as, as you put it, the, the Gulf War, it, it's, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a pivot point in our national story that you kind of keep coming back to in the book. And I remember very vividly, um, I was in high school when the Gulf War began and having, you know, parents who, you know, knew people who fought in Vietnam or my mother's case protested the war in Vietnam. My father had signed up to join the National Guard because they canceled his draft deferment. So like the Vietnam War was this story of tension in my house. And you're right. It was just like, as he as Bush put it, uh, you know, getting rid of the Vietnam syndrome. I remember a speech that he gave. I think this was a real speech. I hope I didn't imagine it, where he said, we are burying the hatchet of Vietnam in the sands of Iraq. And it was this idea that like we have moved past this trauma and now we can talk about war as righteous again. And then along comes Tom Brokaw and Saving Private Ryan. And I mean, it's a great film and there's parts of the film that I think that are are really educational and profound, especially showing how violent war is. But, you know, it. it, it it, 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 it's hard to separate it from where we were, I think, as a country in needing to rethink how we feel about war. And we started to feel good about it in a lot of ways, didn't we? I, I think we did. And I, I you know, s- several things can be true at once. And so I don't, this is not, my book is not an argument, of course, that we shouldn't have fought the war and that right. the things that we accomplished by contributing to the Allied victory were somehow not worth accomplishing. I, I believe that they were. And I believe that we established, helped to establish a, a post-war international order that was vital. And we did liberate Europe, right? We, we did all of these things, but that can be true at the same time um, as all of these other things, as all of these, as all of the ambivalence. And the problem with the notion of this as a as a good war is that I think it has made us believe that every time America goes to war, we will accomplish a similar work, a good work of liberation. And we've seen that that has not been the case. And I think that we have preserved a kind of bottomless capacity for surprise when it doesn't work out. And it's amazing to me, such is the hold, right? Such is the force of this particular war and of what it did accomplish that we just, we keep being, we just, as I said, we just can't, we can't quite bend our minds around the fact that we will not be welcomed as liberators wherever we go and we will not achieve what was achieved in that war. And so I think that there's, there's become a, just a, a, a transformation of, American violence and that it, it can achieve these things somehow. Let's talk about the section in your book where you talk about um, 
movies in which you know the returning veteran is not portrayed as a hero, and in some cases is portrayed as a threat. These are movies in which um, you know the the veteran is seen as somebody who was a professional killer who was trained how to use weapons, uh, who in some cases brought those weapons back as souvenirs. Um, and that, that led to a proliferation of guns uh, and the idea that, you know, guns showing up in movies uh, as, you know, it must be a GI that did this because he was shot with a Luger. Um, talk about some of the films of that area, particularly the noir films that stand out to you, where you see this more menacing portrayal of the GI, which I think would be one now that like, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, Hollywood getting behind a movie necessarily like that, I guess, unless it had something more profound to say, but what are some of the ones of that era, that noir era that stick out for you? Well, there are so many. So in many of these movies, GIs will sort of drift through a conventional, any town USA where a crime has been committed. And often the criminal is the upstanding banker or district attorney himself or someone like that who's committed the crime. But this this GI who happens to show up is a suspect. And the authorities will always send away to Washington for the war record. And sometimes the war record will reveal great heroism, silver stars, for example, purple hearts, commendations. And this makes people doubt this GI could, he's a hero. He's a war hero. How could he possibly commit the crime? On the other hand, people say, oh, well, he's really a professional killer. He's learned how to kill. He's good at this. He must solve problems this way. And so it's always a double-edged sword. And there are other films in which people talk about how easy it is sometimes to counterfeit this. So there's, there's films about, uh, soldiers who who have a medal and someone will say, yeah, you can buy it in any pawn shop. So this idea that they might be lying about their war service, and there are films that talk about that as well. Um, and the idea that this returning GI is a figure who is who introduces instability. Can it once be a scapegoat for um, these these towns? Or can be someone who actually is violent and out of control. Um, often these are amnesia victims. They're not the only ones who are amnesia victims, but when, when the GI has uh, an amnesia problem, that creates all sorts of questions. Um, and, you know, what is it that, that he doesn't know about his pre-war life and how will he possibly reintegrate uh, into the post-war world? And film noir is only one of the genres, I think, in which the return of the GI is explored. The other is the resurgence of the Western in the 50s, aided, of course, by widescreen technologies and, and this idea that there it's a Civil War veteran. And those are often read as Cold War allegories, but I think they're also about return uh, the, po the post-World War II world uh, domestically in the sense that those veterans always come back and they've been cheated of their land or of their wives or girlfriends um, or cattle, and they have to get it back. And they're, they're, they're often thieves, but they're often something has been stolen from them. And so they've turned sour and they're, they're always outliers. They're, they're outlaws. Sometimes they're, they're not, they're always on the fringe of society. Did the films of that era and those kinds of films inform people's thinking about veterans and their impressions of them the way that more contemporary films like, say, Saving Private Ryan uh, or the Band of Brothers uh, miniseries does? So it's so hard to to judge what informs what, which direction that goes. When I was looking at these films and I mean, I, I talk about only a small fraction of the hundreds and hundreds of films that I ended up watching. But what seemed to me was that it was less perhaps a matter of influence than it was of reflection, of kind of prevailing ideas about veterans and then how those would be reproduced on the, the, on the screen. You mentioned the proliferation of weapons. There are newspaper articles at the time that talk about this and suggest that veterans groups might aid in the in a kind of amnesty, right? Return all of these weapons so that we don't have all of these these weapons loose in society and this sort of craze for souvenirs. You mentioned Lugers, all sorts of things, swords, guns. Um, but I so I I read them as 
as a kind of reflection of just the pervasive unease at what had happened, how this war had had changed things, in, both personally and and nationally. And I feel like that it, that seems more of a kind of in the moment sort of sentiment, doesn't it? This, these are more these are movies about a contemporary audience that remembers what it was like they'd served in the war. Whereas I think now, you know, so much of the war films now are, are informed by nostalgia and we're sort of like layering that on uh, and, and again, making our souls feel better for it. But the further we get away from it, the more it becomes this, you know, which I suppose happens all the time in history, this kind of, you know, hagiography kind of sets in a little bit. Yeah, I think that that distance, I think the age of the veterans, we become sentimental as they become older um, and as we lose them. And I think that that's human and natural. And this is not the first time, of course, that this has happened to us. I, I talk at the end of the book about the Civil War and about when the 50th anniversary, let's say, of Gettysburg occurred and all of the very old surviving veterans came back to Gettysburg and met one another where they had once fought. And of course, this was suffused with a kind of sentimentality and with a sense of fraternity that eclipsed a discussion of why they were there in the first place and, and what the war was all about. So we've been here before, um, in a sense. Why do you think there are not more movies about the First World War? I mean, there's, you know, I guess you know, the Sergeant York or the Private York films is the big one that I think of. There's obviously been exceptions to this. There are some great World War I films, uh, you know, and even like recently, but it hasn't really been this kind of um, terrain that filmmakers and artists have explored the way they have with World War II films. So there are, as you said, uh, with Sergeant York, with uh, a, an majestic silent film called The Big Parade uh, with John Gilbert, who was one of the great stars of the silent era. And so there were some, there were also, when I talk a little bit about these, there were some uh, interwar films that discussed the plight of the World War I veteran who ended up being in these films, one of the forgotten men, the so-called forgotten men of the Depression. I think our entrance into that war was so late and although our role in it was pivotal, I think because of the strong feelings of isolationism that followed it, that it was sort of something that we felt we had been drawn into European struggles, despite Wilson's rhetoric about democracy, that we wanted to put that behind us as well. And so you can see it threading through. You can see the anxiety that... Act played out in real life in the the um the bonus army that that marched on on Washington demand during the depression demanding its bonus early um that was put down quite ruthlessly by Douglas MacArthur and others um in Anacostia right outside uh right in you know in, in Washington DC out uh, across the river so i think there was an uneasy sense that this was the plight of these veterans sort of merged in these movies with those of um, the dispossessed, the disenfranchised during the Depression. Um, and I think that the Depression itself, which became such a subject for films um, and also was the reason that so many other films were presented this sort of fabulous art deco escapist kind of fair as well, um, that the World War I story didn't, somehow didn't, didn't carry through as strongly. Yeah, I'm reminded too in recent years that, of course, there was also a pandemic <laughs> at that time. And so talk about a period of time in which just there is so much uh, happening that perhaps it crowds out those stories. Uh, I'm curious, the cadets that you teach at West Point, when they come into your classes, what is their understanding of World War II? I mean, do they, how do they, I mean, they're obviously, they're different than normal college students in like, and that they have chosen to go into a career of professional military service. Uh, and, and they'll do that after they graduate. Do they come in with ideas about the war, and what are they? So I think their ideas, maybe years ago, they would have been saving, saving Private Ryan would have been one of the strong influences. I think they've watched many of the miniseries. They've watched Band of Brothers. They have watched The Pacific. So I think, in part, it comes from that. In many ways, World War II is very distant for them. And... I think that 
what survives is is the most flattering version and is the simplest version of that war. Um, but their lives are, and again, this changes year to year. I was reminded by by one of my first year students in the fall that first year students at West Point have known no other reality but a country at war. And of course I knew that, but I didn't really know it in the way that he, because for a while my students would say, well, we're part of a post 9-11 generation and they felt a great deal of solidarity and they had chosen a particular career path um, in the wake of those events. But they said, we don't really feel a connection to that. And That's, so, that, that, yeah, they, they've never, they, it's, it's always just been present in their lives too. And they must feel a, a, such a deeper connection to those wars than others, because of course we have an all volunteer force. We had a, a draft in the second world war and, and they've chosen to, to go serve. And, and, and your students are, I mean, these are the elite. I mean, it is an incredibly competitive process to get into one of the military academies. So for them, it must be just a, a pretty deeply different experience. It must resonate very differently than it does for your average moviegoer. Yes. And, and when we study the literature of war or the cinema of war, of course, it has a particular, they have a particular connection to it. But I also think it's the case that um, my students and my colleagues are constantly reinventing and deepening and making more complicated their relationship to service that it goes through many different phases and that when you're, how much do you know when you're 18 of anything, right? Of what, yeah, I mean, you, you may know a lot about some things, but in terms of, you know, sort of what you're committing to and, right. and these sort of right. lofty ideas. Um, so there, there is a, there is certainly an idealism and, and no one would want to crush that, but there is also a sense that the longer you serve and the more that you see, you have to be able to accommodate that grim reality. And I watch that happen all the time. And I watch people constantly renegotiate their relationship to what it is that they've signed up to do. And they've grown up in an environment in which you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, these are not um, these are not wars that we count as our great successes, right? These are deeply problematic. I mean, we're still arguing about them. The war in Afghanistan, we only left Afghanistan uh, a few months ago. So when your students see World War II films, and particularly the more recent vintage of the Saving Private Ryans and that kind of thing, are they skeptical of that portrayal of war? Or do they look at that and they say, huh, I guess that was a good war, and the rest have just been not? <laughs> I think they see in it what everyone else does, which is a comparative clarity. That this idea that one would fight a war in that, because it looks so clear on the screen anyway, right? It's not, we don't, we don't, we, we see sort of conventional troop movements and we see those sort of the, um, the, the typical engines of war. We see, you mentioned the Memphis Bell, we see, you know, movies about the Air Corps, we see submarine movies. They're all of these little sub-genres and they have a sort of very recognizable and familiar ring to them. And the, the wars that we have, we have been involved in for the last 20 years don't have that. Yeah. Films of counterinsurgency are not the same as films of conventional warfare. And they don't, have, they don't have the same kind of arc and they don't have that same kind of resolution. And that's the thing. We've, we've searched, I think, throughout the last 20 years for punctuation marks. And they've all seemed, they've all been illusory. Whereas World War II did end, and it right, right. it had, and so this sense that it ha that it had an end is something that that we've never really had since, I think. And so right. that's that's I think there's a there's a real narrative, there's a sort of primal storytelling phenomenon at work here. That the arcs of those stories are the ones that we crave and we need, especially in an era when we're not getting them. I wonder, too, if that's why the visuals of the pullout from Afghanistan and specifically from Kabul over the summer were so traumatic for so many people because this war that was the longest war the United States has ever fought that most people had forgotten about or it didn't really touch their lives because the footprint was so very small at the end to have it end with these these awful images of people falling out of planes and of civilians and people being shot. It did provide 
that kind of final scene, didn't it? And I wonder if that will, you know, just overwhelm people's impressions of that war and will be just the thing that cements it because we learn through these visual stories, don't we? If Vietnam is any guide and the fall of Saigon as that final image that I think most people retain, then if, if that's the, the model, then perhaps that will be the thing that, that stays with us. Yeah. Um, talk about getting to watch all these movies. Um, did you just get to get up every day and did you try and cram like three into a day? And you had so many films. So how did you do that? And where did you go to watch them? So the year I one I took a sabbatical one year and I spent part of it in the screening room at MoMA, the Museum of Modern mm -hmm. Art in New York, which has a wonderful <clears throat> film division and they um, have, take very good care of the films. One of the things that's so challenging about many of these films is they're on old nitrate film stock. And so they're combustible and they deteriorate. They're very volatile. And uh, so that they have this lovely uh, preservationist impulse. And you can go and, and sit in the screening room if you're a researcher, and it's really quite amazing to see these films. And the other place that I spent a lot of time, which was equally wonderful, is the Library of Congress. Mm. And uh, they have a big warehouse, I think, out in Virginia, and you can order up these films. And they have these just fabulous librarians and technicians there. And you get to, I was telling my, I'm teaching a film class now, and I was telling my students about this because we we're talking about the quality of black and white film and how it's because there was so much silver in it and this old film stock, but um, it shrinks and deteriorates. And so sometimes when I was at the Library of Congress, these things were so fragile and you felt that you were being, you were really fortunate to be able to see, even if it was an obscure and not very good movie, that you were seeing something that you might not be able to see again, or that might not survive. And um, so there was something really amazing about that. But what it did for me is that those films that I had started to see as a kid with my father and that I saw later on, I didn't know to what degree they were representative. But after watching hundreds and hundreds of movies and seeing the same sorts of motifs, I realized that, in fact, they were and that this permeated not just those A-list films that you would see, but all of the other stuff that played um, at the bottom of the bill and that many people saw in many parts of the, of the country. And so going to the Library of Congress and being able to sit there in, in, your, with your, little, in your little cubicle and watching these films uh, was amazing. I mean, part of, the, part of the thing about film, of course, the estimates, I think, are that we've lost maybe... 90% of silent films um, and who knows how many other films. And so the idea now I think people are very conscious about that. And there are several places that do a lot of work in preserving film, which in itself is a fascinating process. But there's, there was something to me because I've always deeply loved film, but there was something to me about the fragility of all this that, that was as someone who was researching and watching this stuff made it sort of even more, um, made the detective work even more exciting, I think, than it might otherwise have been. Did you come away with a top 10 or a top five list or even a favorite war film uh, when it was all said and done? You know, my favorite war film, which I guess itself is an odd phrase, is not an American film. It's uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows, mm. which is uh, a French film that was not released here uh, until recently actually in the in the uh, 2000s and I saw it in New York City down at Film Forum um, it was originally released in 1969 and it's about a resistance cell a French resistance cell and of course the French have have revised their own World War II memories several times as well right every country that fought that war has serially revised their memories of it um, but this is about this this resistance cell of the most, they're the bravest people you could ever imagine. They're not professionals. They're completely untrained for this, but they do these extraordinary things. And it is the quietest war movie I have ever seen. And they, they do this work and it's, un, it's futile. I mean, it's unbelievably futile and um, disastrous but this portrait of just this small group of human beings doing whatever it is they can, 
Um, and they're, because they're not professionals, it somehow, it somehow brings home to you what it must have been like for we began our discussion talking about all these these young people who sort of found themselves in a war and were not professional soldiers. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, these are these are complete amateurs. And so confronted with violence as they are, they respond to it as most of us would and not as professional soldiers would. And that seems to me an important lesson and an important thing to understand um, is that the violence of war reaches way beyond the professional soldier and impacts life at so many different levels. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to ask you about current events. Um, uh, you know, we're recording this interview on Thursday, February 24th. Uh, it's around 1 p.m. People will be able to hear this a week from now. Uh, and of course, overnight, uh, and I didn't sleep much because of this because I was up working, uh, Vladimir Putin ordered uh, Russian military forces to invade Ukraine. And we're seeing a, a full scale uh, sort of invasion, mostly from the air so far playing out. We don't know where it will go. Ukraine and Europe may look very differently a week from now when people can hear our conversation. But I'm curious, you know, as somebody who studies war and who thinks a lot about war, I mean, what are what are your thoughts right now uh, as we're watching this unfold? Well, of course, I'm not a, a foreign policy expert, so I, I I approach this from a kind of, I guess, a historical or or mm-hmm. linguistic perspective. Mm-hmm. In that, I am struck by the fact that the language that I think many different people are using to describe what's happening. The references are all, almost all, it seems to me, to World War II Mm. on both sides. So Mm. I noticed that um, Putin was talking about the Ukrainians' neo-Nazi regime, I believe. Right, yes. And then there have been mentions of Munich. There have been mentions of various aspects of World War II, and that still seems to be the language in which we describe it. And and I guess sort of thinking about the longevity of those terms, and I mean, in part, of course, that owes to the post-war international order um, that was the consequence of World War II, but, I, but the language itself, it seems to me, is deeply indebted um, to that conflict, to that sort of way of looking at the world. I think that's that's right, and I and I had I've been thinking of it <clears throat> more through a tactical and a policy lens, but as a journalist, I should be thinking about it as through a linguistic one too. We we use words, and this sort of the boilerplate um, that always always a boilerplate set of words or phrases or even paragraphs emerges and around a big big story, in particular one that's a crisis, and the one that keeps getting thrown around is uh, biggest war in Europe since World War II. And the since World War II and the superlative attached to that has been kind of already embedded in uh, in the buildup to it, too. If Putin does this, it will be the biggest military action or biggest war in Europe since World War II. And it's just so striking to me the way that it is, you know, can sort of instantly bring us back to that moment. Um, and I'm sure for for a lot of people, maybe younger people who don't think much about World War II, they'll say, well, that sounds really bad. Uh, but it's it's meant to sound terrifying. It's meant to sound significant and it's meant to be evocative. And, and here we are talking about that war and it is 2022 in Europe. And there is an event that is putting our consciousness right back there to try and make sense of this moment. And that just, that strikes me as, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not something I was expecting to see in 2022, but we're still using World War II as a frame and, you know, and understandably so, I guess, in this case. Um, well, our last question traditionally on Chatter is, I reach into our Chatter box, which I have right here, and I pick a, a previously written uh, question at random, which I get to ask you, and that becomes uh, the last uh, question of the interview. So let me pull one out here. And this one is, well, this is a fun one. Um, should the U.S. send a manned mission to Mars? My attitude towards space exploration mm-hmm. is sort of framed by this sense that, um, I guess by science fiction and by the sense that in the absence of 
sort of terrestrial peaks to climb and records to break, that this answers some great need for grand, heroic, mythic action in us. So I'm not really sure technically how this manned mission would work and when it would arrive, but I do think that it, I mean, Kennedy framed this for us, right, beautifully, but I just, I think it's so, I don't necessarily feel it myself, but I, I think it's so powerful for, for people, this idea that we might, and for various reasons. I mean, it can be a kind of um, imperialistic impulse, an impulse to conquer new lands or new realms, but it can also be animated by this desperate need to connect with some other life form out there. And so I think it just touches on all of these really uh, deeply mythic ideas. And so whether I think we'll do this or not, I, I suppose when the technology is ready, we will we will do it. And they'll probably make many, many movies about yes. it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and hopefully they'll be good ones. Um, Elizabeth Samet, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this discussion. Your book is Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. It's a great read. It's a tremendous piece of scholarship. Thank you for coming on our show to talk about it. Thank you, Shane. This was really lovely to talk to you. That was Chatter a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at ThatWasChatter. Chatter.